Good morning. It's my pleasure to welcome you to Calvary today. I am Randall Bradley, and I'm one of the ministers here at Calvary, and we're glad that you're here to worship today. Whether you're a regular attender, and this is the place you find yourself most every Sunday, or whether you're a first-time uh, person here today, we welcome you. We're glad that you're here to worship on this day. We hope that you'll make yourself at home, that you'll participate as family. We hope that you'll participate without fear. As you've been a part of Calvary in these days, we've been, uh, during this Lenten season, talking about fasting from fear, and that fear is one of the things that we're trying to give up. And yet, as I think about it, fear is one of the things that we often experience in worship. Oftentimes, we're afraid to sing, we're afraid to pray, we're afraid to participate because we're fearful. But let me encourage you today that during this time, you're not alone. If you look around you, there's a lot of other people in this room, and you're not the only one singing, you're not the only one praying, you're not the only one that is uh, listening to stories and combining your story with others. So this is a corporate place. This is a place of family where we don't really have to be afraid. So even in worship today, let us fast from fear. Let us give that up and let us participate wholeheartedly. When I think about being afraid, I can't uh, help but go back to a time when I was a preschooler. There was a uh, preschool Sunday school, and I had a teacher named Mrs. Mathis. At the time, uh, I think she was a really old lady, because uh, she was a, seemed about the age of my grandmother. And uh, in our little community, you know kind of those things, and she died around the same time as my grandmother did. But she was one of the oldest people in our community, but taught us in preschool. And one time we had a lesson about fear, and the only thing I remember is that we had a memory verse, and it was, what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. And you know that is a King James version of a, of a verse. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. Let's switch that around a little bit today, and let's say, what time I am afraid, I will trust in God. Why don't we change it to that? But what I want to say about that verse is Miss Mathis said, when you grow up, as you grow up, you're going to be really afraid a lot of times in your life, and you're going to be so scared from the dark, from difficult things that you have to do, and she talked to us about that, and she said, when you're afraid, say that over and over. Just keep saying it over and over and over, and we might today call that a mantra or something. Uh, we, she didn't refer to it as that, but as I grew up, and I was in piano recitals, and I was afraid that I was going to die before I got to the piano, to play. Uh, and as I was later in college and did piano recitals and voice recitals and stood in front of choirs and in all kinds of scary places, and even lately and even this week when I am just afraid that I don't know if I'm going to make it through fill in the blank, I oftentimes will just say, what time I am afraid, I will trust in God. When I'm afraid, I will trust in God. I just keep praying that over and over. Why don't we say that together? When I am afraid, I will trust in God. When I am afraid, I will trust in God. When I am afraid, I will trust in God. Let's say that today. Say that this week. And let's say it even today when we're afraid, even in this safe place. We're going to ask now that the boys and girls come forward and join Emily over here on the steps. So will all the boys and girls come and join us in this children's time.
Good morning. It is good to see you this morning. Can anyone read for me what it says at the top of our worship folder underneath the date? The third Sunday in Lent. We are in the season of Lent in the church calendar. Just like we have a calendar with all of the different months and seasons in it, we also have a church calendar that helps us to mark time and live in a pattern with Jesus. And today we are in the third week of Lent. Lent is a time of preparation and waiting that leads up to Easter Sunday, and it lasts 40 days. During these days of Lent, Christians from around the world do different spiritual practices to make room for Christ in their lives. They want to focus more on Christ and walk more closely with Jesus in that time. They might fast or give up something that's keeping them from being close to Jesus. Or they might pray and read their Bible. They might confess their sin and ask God for forgiveness. Maybe you have been praying and reading your Bible more closely this season, or maybe you've seen your parents do that. We do these things so that we can focus on God and follow Christ very, very closely during this season of Lent. We make room in our lives and in our hearts to love God more, and we prepare for Easter Sunday. So let's pass these crosses around. Can someone tell me what the color of Lent is? Purple. Purple. Mm -hmm. So today I have just purple crosses for you to remind you that we are in the season of Lent and we are focusing on God and walking closely with Christ during this time. So let's pass those around and let's go to God in prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, help us to grow closer to you each day of Lent. Show us how to make room for you in our lives. Help us to know you more. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed to your seats.
and loaves of bread into overwhelming abundance. We confess that far too often we see only scarcity. We fall prey to believing that there is never enough, never enough time, never enough money, never enough energy, never enough love, enough strength, enough goodness. We live in a world of never enough. And if we're not careful, we become conformed to the patterns of this world of scarcity in which we live. God, today we confess our disbelief. We confess the ways in which we have been people of little faith, with little dreams and little hopes and a little God. We ask that you would take our smallness and transform it into abundance. Take our fears and give us the courage to trust. Take our anxieties and help us to breathe in the depths of your peace. Take our doubts and give us the faith to believe. We come to you on our Lenten journey today asking that you would whet our appetite, quench our thirst for more of you and less of us. Visit us with your presence, saturate us with your spirit, and bathe us in your streams of living water, that our lives might reflect the overwhelming, overflowing abundance of your unfailing, ever-present, always more than enough love. We ask these things with open hearts, open minds, and open hands, ready to receive from you and to respond to you today. Amen. I wrote one of the early uh, devotionals in our current Lenten series, Fasting from Fear. I opened with the statement, I am by nature a fearful person. 
Ed, on the other hand, does not have a fearful nature. In fact, he has a very bold and adventuresome nature. And because of that, we have found ourselves in some really fearsome places during our almost 55 years of marriage. Some of these were from our two years spent living and teaching in Benghazi, Libya, and during that time traveling in Africa and the Middle East and also in Europe. <clears throat> but we've chosen to share one particular tale uh, that was frightening even for Ed. So I'm going to let him tell this story. Well, our story begins in June of 1967 as we prepared to leave Libya to return to the U.S. after a two-year stay in Benghazi. It revolved around what was called the Six-Day War, which was fought between Israel and the Arab nations of Egypt, Jordan, and Syria. Now, Libya, where we were living, was not a country involved directly in the war, but they were certainly supportive of their Arab brethren. We felt it was no longer safe to actually live in Libya because these people that we had once called friends now looked upon us as the infidel or as enemies. There was much violence happening around the city. In fact, the last week that we were there, we were with other foreign nationals under house arrest, a modified house arrest situation where we could only come and go to get food or, or to do essential things. The day we were to leave, which was on a Saturday, before the actual war broke out on Monday, we boarded a plane in Benghazi, Libya. We were to fly to Tripoli, where we were to change over to a KLM airline plane and fly to the wonderful city of Geneva, Switzerland, much more peaceful place. Well, we arrived in Tripoli, and some of you may not remember this, but we didn't always have those things where they came out and. Uh, the uh, passageways where we could go right up to the terminal and walk out. We had to park way out on the tarmac, and we had to uh, deplane out there going down the steps. And as we came down, and uh, there were about eight other foreign nationals besides us, mostly French, as I, as I uh, recall. The rest were Arab passengers. As we came down, we noticed a contingent of Libyan Army soldiers with guns and they separated us, Carla and I, and the eight other foreign nationals from the Arab passengers, and the Arab passengers went on into the terminal. But we were taken under armed guard around the side of the building, all the way around to the back, to a door in the back of the terminal. The door was open, and we were told to go in. No one seemed to speak English, but their sign language was clear and evident. We found ourselves in a very, very small windowless room. The door was closed and we were left with one armed guard guarding the door so that we could not get out. We were very fearful. We did not know what was going on. We stayed in there for six hours. We were never allowed to leave, not to go to the bathroom, no food, no water, nothing. We were perplexed and we were fearful. Well, the door opened finally after six hours and we were motioned outside. We said, oh, I wonder what's gonna happen next. And so we looked and we noticed there was this large army truck with canvas over the back like you see in the movies. 
and we were told to get up in the truck and the two bench seats that you always see people by, and we thought, oh my gosh, what is happening here? The armed guards climbed in the truck with us and sat there and we took off on a very bumpy path, which did not appear to be a road at all. We were not sure where we were going because we could see nothing. We finally stopped after about 10 minutes and we were motioned out of the truck. Before that truck stopped, however, we had all determined we're being taken away from here and with all the violence being going on and we're very likely to be executed or imprisoned somehow just for being non-Arab at the time. Well, as we got out of the truck and went around the side, we noticed that we were at the end of one of the big runways in Tripoli, and uh, sitting at the end was this great big KLM airplane. And finally, in English, don't you wish we had known they'd spoken English before? <laughs> this one man soldier said to us, you are to go as quickly as you can and get on board this plane. Perplexed, we said, what has been going on? And they said, there was a violent mob in that airport and they had attacked other nationals, non-Arab people, that very day. And had they not met us at the plane and taken us into protective custody, we might have become victims ourselves. And so we boarded the plane, huge, one of those huge DC-10s, only 10 of us on board. And we took off and we banked out north over the Mediterranean Sea headed toward Switzerland. <clears throat> with shouts of joy from 10 people filled the plane and many, many tears because we knew that God had delivered us that very day in 1967. I wish that I could tell you that we uh, had been praying so intently and we were so mature in our faith that we never were fearful during that experience. However, our faith was not that strong at that time and um, we we did, did pray generally, and we certainly sent up arrow prayers as it was happening, but we weren't able to be without fear. We did, however, see this as a, a milestone, a touchstone in our life of the need to just turn over my fearful nature, and to whatever extent Ed was afraid, that we learned that we could trust God not just to deliver us safely, but to give us peace in, the, in spite of the circumstances. What did you learn? Well, I learned that there is a time to be fearful, <laughs> and that was one of them. But I also learned from that experience that God is in control of all circumstances. And I remember uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, where it says that God has plans for us, plans for us to prosper. And indeed, I have come to realize that God had plans for us that day in 1967 plans that included Carla and I standing before you now in 2017. Praise be to God.
reading from the book of Psalms. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise, for the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it and the dry land which his hands have formed. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Oh, that today you would listen to his voice. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your ancestors tested me and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are people whose hearts go astray. They do not regard my ways. Therefore, in my anger I swore they shall not enter my rest. A reading from the Gospel according to John. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that it had come wine and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to them, everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the, sign, the first of his signs in Gana of Gaina of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be, be to, to God. God.
fails, it never gives up, never runs out on me. Your love never fails, it never gives up, never runs out on me. Your love never fails, it never gives up, never runs out on me. Your love, your love, your love, your love never fails, it never gives up. Never runs out on me. Your love never fails, it never gives up. Never runs out on me. Your love never fails, it never gives up. Never runs out on me. Your love. Higher than the mountains that I face. 
God we, God, we remember together that you desire truth in the inward being, and so we open our hearts to you, knowing that you're always leading us beyond where we are, we open our hearts to you, and pray that you would teach us now wisdom in the sacred heart. Amen. You ever been to one of those parties where you just didn't want to leave? I mean, you were having so much fun. It's, it is your Cinderella at the ball kind of moment. I was uh, working on this sermon yesterday morning and, and uh, thinking about one of those moments in my life, and I'm working on it, writing about it, and I got a text uh, from an old friend uh, who was uh, the reason for the party and said, I'm coming to, I happen to get a text from her. So we're coming to Waco today. And my friends, Amy and Mark, are sitting right there. It was their wedding that I was writing about, and they happened to be with us today. It was one of those great moments because Amy had grown up in our youth group in Houston, and you know we'd known her since she had pimples and all that kind of stuff. And here she was walking the aisle, and she's getting married, and the ceremony was beautiful and powerful. And then there was the party afterwards, which was absolutely amazing. It was at the Petroleum Club in downtown Houston. So you're up there on top of the Exxon building. You're looking out over the whole city. It's wonderful buffet and food and wine and champagne flowing everywhere and a band that could play everything, especially disco. And it was just <laughs> lots of friends, you know, old friends. We hadn't been together in years, and these are folks that had, you know, grown up in our youth group, and we had hauled them to camp and ski trips and mission trips and all, all that sort of thing, and they're their parents were there, and their youth workers were there. It really was wonderful, and everybody's dancing, and group pictures are being taken, and they're having a great time, I remember. And then Julie and I thought, well, we'll just go up there and make an appearance, because i got to get home and preach in, in Waco. And we stayed, and we stayed, and we stayed until the doors were shut. Because you don't get to party like that too very often, do you? In Jesus' day, it was even more rare. So John, as he begins to tell the story of Jesus' ministry, starts it at a wedding, and it's just a really fun way to begin the gospel story, especially in that culture where everyone led very simple lives, some bread and cheap wine here and there, cheap fish, a, an olive or two on the table, maybe some nuts and figs, that sort of thing, if it had been a really good week. And then, though, someone would get married and everyone the whole town got to party. Hospitality, 
was a sacred duty in the ancient Middle East. So not having a great feast for a wedding would be, that, that'd be a terrible, shameful thing. We don't really have anything uh, like that in our culture. I mean, maybe someone visits your home and uh, they come and then you realize you don't have anything to feed them and you don't have a place to put them and it's just a really difficult moment or your son or daughter has been off at school and for some reason you can't get there. You don't, you're not there to celebrate and to scream a little bit when they walk the stage or maybe you lose a parent and you're not able to honor them in the way you would want with the service that you'd like to give them. This was just a sacred moment, and everybody knew it, and providing a party for the town when the kids got married was this obligation. The whole town awaits this kind of thing, because, you know, they are, they're pretty much eating bologna day by day. Every day it's bologna sandwiches again, and then they get this invitation. We humbly request the honor of your presence to witness our children's wedding vows and feast with them afterwards at the Canaan Club. You put that one on the fridge. Maybe you make a new outfit or go buy one of those fancy Persian ones from the Galilean Gap or maybe even from Herod's or something like that. All the guys would get a, a beard trimmed, you know, and cut their hair, maybe even take a bath. I mean... It was a big deal. Everybody looked forward to this. And then the party would begin as the day went on and the wine would flow. And for some reason, it's not flowing at this wedding. Maybe someone just didn't communicate well with a caterer. Or perhaps there are lots of uninvited guests from the towns around Cana and they're showing up. Who knows? It appears that Jesus' mother Mary was sort of acting as the wedding coordinator. Maybe she's related to the groom. There's some non-canonical gospels that say she might have been a relative or a good friend of the bride, something like that. Maybe she messed up on the wine order. You know, she meant to write 200 guests, and she wrote 20 guests. She seems pretty horrified here because no wine means the end of the party, and it, it, it's just the ultimate social blunder. I mean, it's like if I do a wedding afterwards, you know how we do. We come out and say, folks, that ends our... Our, our service here, but as you know, the, the party will continue uh, at the Petroleum Club. Uh, here's the thing. Uh, the family's decided they can only feed 50 of you. So the first five rows, y'all can go through, you know, the line when you get there. The rest of you, you know, you might want to go to Whataburger on the way. <laughs> when you get there, you can eat some mints and nuts, but that's about it. That's what this would feel like. The wine's a big deal. And not just because it helped people get beyond their inhibitions and sing fuller and dance longer and laugh louder and all that, but it was symbolic for the culture. The rabbi said, without wine there is no joy. And it wasn't about getting drunk, which was a disgrace. It was, though, about celebration. And that was sacred. And Mary is petrified that this celebration is going to come to a screeching halt. She turns to her son probably with a white face. We're out of wine, dear. And we can't tell if she means we're out of wine, dear, and I've been watching you in the backyard practice that miraculous stuff that you do. <laughs> or if she's saying, do you think maybe you and your buddies could go over to Nazareth to the Walmart and get a wagon load of box of wine for us? It's hard to know. Jesus' response, by the way, is not near so disrespectful as it seems. It 
Woman in Greek would be more like mom. And he does acknowledge some problem with the timing. Mary, I think, probably gives him a really big hug and turns to the servants and says, he's in charge, do whatever he tells you to do. Mary, if you check her out in every icon that she is in, Mary is always doing this. Mary is always doing that, and she is gesturing always to Jesus. She's always pointing to Jesus. He is the one. Here he is. Do what he tells you to do. So step back from the story just a little bit. Maybe even hover a bit above Cana, above this religious culture. Need to get some distance from this shameful moment, potentially shameful moment. Jesus, you know, from hearing, has them fill six pots, which hell water for purification. John makes us a point of saying, uh, for us of saying, it's not just any pot. John's not just telling us a fun story here about a wedding or trying to let us know that Jesus is a really, really powerful guy. He's telling you about the spiritual journey and the impact Jesus can have on it. These weren't wine bats. weren't wine skins. They weren't vases holding drinking water. They were these really big pots that held water that everyone used to get clean and yet they had to wash just the right way exactly like in fact surgeons do where the water would flow this way from their fingertips off their hands and off their elbow to get ready and it was the same concern for contamination you didn't want to be contaminated before you entered into something like this and it wasn't really about germs so much it was about that virus called sin and about being clean enough for God right So John only has to say, water for purification, for ceremonial washing, and everyone knows now that he's talking about a religious system that made people pure, and he's not talking to folks about minding their manners before a meal. So the story isn't any longer now about sacred hospitality. It is still about joy and celebration and abundance and wholeness It's about the limitations of a particular system that had run dry. It was a system centered in the law, as we know. And before we go dismissing it at all, we should point out how very important it was and is. Because that's where we begin the journey. You've heard me say this kind of thing in these months. It's where we start. There there are things for us to do in order to live life in the right way. There are emotions that we make. To be pure and pleasing. Not one of us hasn't started there if we've been in a good and faithful community and family. Thou shalt stay out of the street. You shall brush your teeth. You shall go to bed when I tell you to go to bed. Thou shalt say please and thank you. Thou shalt do what is good and honorable and right. Thou shalt go to church, read the scriptures. Thou shalt pray and pray daily. And you go to youth camp in the summer. Right? There's a list, and everyone has a list. We always begin with the list, and that list helps us to live towards God. Israel had that list, right, ten things in stone. God said, if you can live this way, you can be a healthy and whole community, and we can have a relationship. The rules and the rituals are always pointing beyond themselves. It's where we always begin. Rules and requirements and holy motions that point Ritual washing pointed somewhere. It 
it maybe awakened those folks before they sat down to the reality that was about to take place, the gracious reality around a table that we just slip by in our busyness so often, don't we? They got ready for it. Got ready for the time of prayer that would involve connected them hopefully to something that was beyond them every day doing that wonderful ritual connecting them to what is larger than they are or at least it could if folks kept taking these things seriously those in charge you know you, you can't be downplaying this I mean, Baptists are really bad about this kind of thing you know don't worry about getting it right it's it's really no big deal wink 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 I mean nothing really happens here and it's just symbolic, you know. Stewards of these things can't do that. Mary is the steward of the mysteries of Christ always. And she's doing that here. And they have to be experienced. In order to be experienced, they have to be handled with care. These are the holy motions of our lives. And yet someone has to know that all of our motions towards the divine in fact are only motions towards the divine the mature in the community have to know their limitations or our experience with God will stay anchored out there in these external things all the time in our conformity codes sin management minding our spiritual manners in this joyless kind of tweaking and enforcement of our ritual washing all the time. We've seen it through history and in every communion. We see it now where we all have a tendency to cling to what is less than holy. There were six pots, did you notice? Six. It's almost perfect. Just a little lower than perfection. Seven is the perfect number. Six must be good, really, really good stuff. I mean, the law is really, really good stuff. And spiritual practices are really good stuff. And church is good stuff. But it's not enough. It's not complete. At some point, there's got to be an inward reality that begins to fill us and change us. Not that I know about such things, but wine I hear is a, is a good symbol for inner transformation. I've heard about this, that wine apparently has some effect on you when it gets in your system. You know, it interacts with who you are. You start feeling different and you start behaving differently. In John's story, Jesus makes this wine to be consumed and taken in and internalized. And I want you to imagine, this was probably written around 90 A.D. Just imagine people at the end of the first century in church or in the second century in church, and they're hearing what we heard read. And they're hearing it read, and as they look up at the reader, there's the chalice, there's the communion chalice. And they're thinking, well, oh, we know about this kind of wine. Of course, His life within us transforms our life. We take Him in and it changes who we are. So Jesus in this moment, by the power from above and beyond, makes somewhere around 150 gallons of wine. 150. It's a little bit like you're going to dinner and you think, well, I better pick up a bottle of wine. And you go, to, I don't know where you go to get that stuff, but you go to that place and... and uh, and you think, I'm going to get 10 bottles because, you know, we don't want to run out. I mean, that's what this is like. Four people at the dinner party, 10 bottles, 150 gallons. It just keeps flowing 
and flowing and flowing and flowing because there is no limit on the grace that keeps flowing to you. God's mercies are new every morning and they keep flowing and flowing and there's no ancient wedding party that could make a dent in 150 gallons. God's grace is inexhaustible. John begins the ministry of Jesus right there at a celebration with a story about Jesus restoring the celebration, ensuring it. And in one level, I think it is Jesus, God in the flesh, loving and blessing a good celebration and helping a family out of their shame. He is all about removing shame all the time. At another level, though, and there's always another level, it's about the reality that God is always meeting us beyond our sixes. All the things that can bless us but are not the source of our blessing or being. There's a lot of sixes out there. Things that are part of life and things that are part of your life that are really good. They really are sixes. Maybe close to perfect on some days. Relationships that matter. Family, community, churches church there's all that we learn there and all that we receive from it callings that are yours careers passions and agendas to do this or that and people and places that shape you traditions in your life that hold you again and again rituals that cleanse us there are a lot of sixes out there a lot of good things most of them full of meaning on lots of days None of them perfect, and none of them capable of filling you up and transforming you, not ultimately. They always lead you, the sixes do, to the same place, I think. The sixes always will be emptied in our lives. They'll always come up short. They're not God. They're actually supposed to lead us to their limitations and our limitations, and to this emptied reality that we really have to get to, our own nothingness, not a... Empty may be a hard place to be, but it is not a bad place to be. Because when we're empty, we get filled. <laughs> the empty places, that's where grace flows. We get filled, only we don't do the filling. Jesus does. He fills what is good with what is eternal. You remember Mary's guidance. Do whatever he tells you to do. So maybe you can see her looking at you and pointing to Jesus and just encouraging you in that way. What in your life needs to be animated by the work of Jesus? What is it about your journey right now that needs to be transformed by the reality of God's grace in you. What feel, feels empty, do what he tells you to do. Do you notice at the beginning, John's writing this story and he starts it by telling us that it all took place on the third day. Ancient weddings did not happen on the third day. They happened on Wednesday. Wedding's day, not the third day. You know what happens on the third day. We know what happens on the third day. 
The really big world-changing miraculous thing happens on the third day. The thing only God can do. The transformation and resurrection only God can bring. That's what happens on the third day. Oh God, have mercy on us. We know you know the depths of our emptiness and places where we have bumped into our limitations again and again. You know how we look to things that are your gifts and try to turn them into the giver. We feel on lots of days like we're running on empty. We need more of the life that we need. So we call out to you, help us. Have mercy. And may your mercy pour into the empty places in our lives and fill us in an abundant way with the very best stuff. We receive the restoration and the resurrection only you can give through Christ. Amen. We're always invited into a place of confession and invitation to respond, not only as individuals, but as a church, as we remember the things that matter most to us and the things that we're all going to, to need to ha have echoing in our hearts and resonating in our lives tomorrow as we do another Monday. So we'll stand together and make our confession of faith by singing together. As always, our ministers will be at the back of the, con at the church to receive you into fellowship and into this church, into God's church, maybe just to pray with you about what's going on in your life. Let's stand together as we sing. shines blaze its day may brighter ever be 
joy that seekest me through pain. I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not pain that morn shall tearless be. O cross that lifteth up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust life's glory dead, and from the ground where blossoms red, life that shall When marriage brought me to a foreign land called Waco, I knew one of the challenges would be finding a church that I liked as much as the one I'd left in Memphis. Luckily for me, my husband Paul was already attending Calvary, and after visiting once, I thought, I can see myself here. I was attracted to Calvary's traditional setting and worship style, the beautiful music, and the community, interesting, engaged, and passionate followers of Christ. Since joining Calvary, I truly feel like I've always been here, and that's why I give to what God is doing in this place. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for this day and for the blessings and provisions you've bestowed on us. Help us to realize that nothing we could give could ever match what you have first given us, for all we have is from you. We ask that you will help us be courageous, sacrificial, and joyful givers who are lighthearted about our financial situations and wise stewards of our time and talents. In your son's holy name we pray, amen.
We hope that you will join us for our lunch after worship today downstairs in our fellowship hall. We are having a baked potato lunch. We trust that there will be an abundance of that as well. And also that you'll join us for our children's camp fundraiser during lunch as well. And now I'd like to invite up a few of our lay leaders who are going to share with us something to be thinking about as we prepare for a coming um, Sunday school series in the next two weeks. Good morning. I'm Jennifer Borderud. I'm chair of Coordinating Council. And Coordinating Council regularly um, discusses finances and giving. And we thought it might be helpful to form a task force that could create some additional spaces for conversations about giving. David Norris and Sarah Dye are two members of that task force. And so they're here this morning to talk a little bit about some upcoming opportunities. Thank you, Jennifer. One of the first things we looked at when we saw that we were faced with some financial challenges was not to get lost in the symptoms, but to look at the cause. Lately, my Bible readings have been taking me through all the intrigue of Jacob and Esau, Esau's deceit and trickery and Jacob's victimhood and outrage. Following this, we see Jacob setting off towards his kinsman to search for a wife. And we come to that story we all learned as children of Jacob's ladder. As Jacob sleeps, he experiences the vision of this ladder reaching to heaven and the angels moving up and down. And God the Father is present with him and promises to be faithful, to keep Jacob, to bring him back to his land, to bless all nations through him. But then there follows a part of the story we sometimes overlook. The Bethel part is easy. Jacob takes this stone he's used for a pillar and makes it a monument to God. But immediately after setting this stone, he makes a promise back to God. He promises to give him one-tenth of everything that God blesses him with. I don't think it's a promise made from a sense of obligation but rather it springs from a heart of great gratitude. So we look forward to having you these next two weeks as we take a pause and reflect on our own attitudes towards God's generosity and how we respond. I hope that at this point everybody's heard about what we're doing for the next two weeks. Um, but if you haven't, we have essentially broken all of the Sunday school classes into three different classes. So we've combined some classes for the next two weeks for a kind of short series on cultivating generosity. And it's going to be, those classes are going to be led by members of our uh, group. Um, and so we're going to just be discussing pretty much where, where Calvary is right now financially. Um, and then also reflecting on giving and generosity and hospitality and a lot of these really important questions that distinguish uh, the body of Christ. A couple of people have asked me um, why when I'm already wearing quite a few hats here at Calvary right now, uh, I decided to participate in this as well, which is a fair question. Um, but I think that there are two reasons, two primary reasons at least. One of those is that I love to talk to you. Uh, I love to I love to talk to you, hear from you. You know, whenever somebody joins the church, we say one of the things we hope is to learn from 
each other, and I learn from you all the time in all of the settings. Um, I have learned from my fellow members of the pastor search committee. I have learned from the deacon body. I have learned from my Sunday school class. I learn from my fourth through sixth graders, right? Abbott's giving me a big thumbs up. I learn from them. Um, and I learn from you every time I talk to you. And so I am interested in having these discussions. That's a huge part of the reason I agreed to do that and this and want to do this. The other part of the reason, though, is similar but bigger. And it's just that I love Calvary. I love Calvary more than I love most things. And uh, I am very, very hopeful and very excited about the direction uh, that Calvary is, is moving in. I see God at work here in, in Calvary right now. And I think that there is still work to be done uh, here in Waco and in this community and in our church and in our lives. And so I'm just excited to get to have conversations with people I love about things I love that affect places I love, like Calvary and Waco. Um, and so I think that, I hope that as we enter this period of, of these two weeks of discussing cultivating generosity, that you will be equally hopeful and excited and come ready to talk about what God is doing in our midst and what has yet to be done. We are certainly excited um, and have had a, a really good time learning from each other, even in the planning process. So we can't wait to, to learn from you as well. So we'll see you next week. Stan. Brothers and sisters, to God, who by the power at work within each one of us is able to do far more than we ask or imagine. To God be the glory in Christ Jesus and in his church and in each one of us.